Good morning, church. Glad that you're here uh, this morning. Grab your Bibles and turn into the, to them to Acts chapter 16. That's where we'll be at this morning, Acts chapter 16. We're going to continue with this unstoppable series that we're going through, The Power of Making Disciples. And really, we're going to look at what I can do or what you can do to accelerate the mission of the church. My name is uh, Chris Persons. I'm the pastor of discipleship here. And filling in for Steve today, as Steve and Kimberly are gone, at a little getaway kind of conference, kind of getting filled up retreat. So just pray for them as their way that they, they would come back refreshed, ready to pour out so faithfully as they always do. But we're in Acts chapter 16, and we're looking at what I can do to accelerate the mission of the church. And maybe your first question is, why should I even be concerned about the church? And if you look uh, with me in Acts chapter 16, actually just the verse above that, the last verse in chapter 15, the last three words are, they went about, this is Paul and Silas, strengthening the churches. So obviously this was on their heart to go about. They cared about the church deeply. And then it continues to read in chapter 16, Paul also came to Derby and to Lystra. Now that's interesting because in Acts chapter 14, the last time Paul was in Lystra, what happened to him and Barnabas? The healed the lame man, right? And then because of that, other people thought they must be like gods, not the true God, but like gods like Zeus and stuff like that. And, and then the Jews there um, and from other towns came and stoned them almost to the point of death. So why, why would they go back to that place? Does it sound like a wise decision? Um, but Paul, it says, he gives a reason why they went back. A disciple was there named Timothy. Timothy would have been probably in his upper teens, maybe early 20s, just a young guy. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And that was written in the past and was a Greek, implying that probably his father had passed away at this time. He was well spoken of by his brothers. That's pretty cool to think that this either teenage boy or just young man is thought highly of spiritually speaking. All right. That he's mature in his faith. Brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, so that's why they went there. And they took him and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those places, for they all knew of his father was a Greek. Now, why? You know, when I read this, I kind of get a trip in my spirit. I don't know if you do. But if you think back to last week, what was that all about? All right? Paul was making the case that faith comes from or uh, belief in Jesus Christ, salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone, right? Not anything addition to it, such as circumcision, right? So why is he now like saying, hey, Timothy, you need to come along, but first we need to circumcise you. That doesn't make sense, right? Well, a couple of things. Well, since uh, Timothy's father was a Greek and didn't hold to the Jewish traditions, uh, typically a Jewish father would be responsible for circumcising uh, their son. So this was kind of like part of Paul playing that role in Timothy's life to be kind of like a father. And I was thinking, you know, maybe he just was, him and Silas were kind of like, you know, to go on this big boy missionary journey, we just, you know, we want you to have some skin in the game, you know, so to speak. So sign up. That was a joke, by the way. But anyway, um, but that wasn't it either, right? And uh, so he was playing a fatherly role a little bit with him. And, but also we know they were going to go minister to Jews, right? And Paul was thinking ahead of time that, you know, if I have Timothy along and he's not circumcised, it might be like close some doors, right, for the gospel. And even though Scripture says that, you know, faith comes from Jesus Christ alone, it doesn't go and prohibit now circumcision. So it's still okay to get circumcised as, as long as you understand it's not 
adding to the gospel, if that makes sense. So this was really an act of spiritual maturity. Like, I don't have to do this, but I'm going to lay down my right and have it done anyway just to create more open doors so it doesn't become a stumbling block or a shut door for the gospel. That's actually saying a lot about who Timothy was and Paul. In verse 4, as they went out on their way uh, through the cities, they delivered uh, to them the observances and decisions that had been made by the apostles and the elders who were at Jerusalem. And this is really key, verse 5. So the churches, similarly to the end of chapter 15, were strengthened in their faith and they increased in numbers daily. If you write in your Bible like I do, uh, by the part that says they were strengthened, like this is what their mission to do, right? They were strengthened in their faith. I would write down, go deeper, like within the church, go deeper, strengthen their faith. And they increased in numbers. I'd write by that, go wider, go wider. So they went deeper and wider. That was what this Paul and Silas and Timothy set out to do. Now let me ask you this question. How many of you uh, love Jesus Christ? All right, about half of you. That's great. Um, hopefully by the end of the message, we all can say that. But no, how many of you love Jesus Christ? Raise your hand if you do and just put it up. Awesome. A lot of you love Jesus Christ. What about this next uh, question? How many of you love the local church, though? Love the church as well, right? Because I think of it this way, uh, what did God do? Like, I'm like, wouldn't it be nice if God created some kind of design or some kind of entity that was out there that, you know, all believers who love Jesus Christ could gather and, and worship him and rally around what he does and who he's about? Well, he has done that. That is called the church, and that's why we can love the church. Think of a Christ, how Christ views the church. You don't need to turn this passage, let's read it, but Ephesians 5.27 says this, Husbands, love their, your wives. You're like, that has nothing to do with the church, but the last half does. As Christ, here's the example, love the church, right? And gave himself up for her, all right? So that's Christ's view, like the, the truth that uh, Christ loved and died for you, and, and Christ loved and died for you, and Christ loved and died for you is the same that Christ died and loved the church as well. What's Paul's view of the church? Well, Colossians 1.24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am being filled up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. That is the church. So Paul is like, I'm willing, willing to suffer and endure inflictions. What? For the sake of the church, the body of Christ. That's only done out of a heart of love. Hebrews 10. I'm just going to summarize it, right? Talking about this change, like uh, what Christ did upon the cross, now the veil's been, and the curtain's been torn, and we can have direct access through Jesus Christ to have a relationship with God, right? And then it goes into three things that we can do, not uh, like individually, but corporately that we can do. It says, let us draw near with true hearts and assurance of faith. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider how to stir up love and good works with each other. And then it says, not neglecting the gathering together or the assembling together, which is referring to the church as become the habit of some, but encouraging one another as you see the day of the Lord approaching. Is the day of the Lord approaching? Yes, it's getting closer and closer. So overall, we need to rally even more so together. If I haven't convinced you the value of the church and the view of the church, just think of it this way. Like, we see the church being established in Acts, right? This is a his book of history. This is the church being assembled through these missionary journeys and stuff. 
post-Acts, what, how many books after Acts in your Bible was written to a specific church? Well, I can read them for you. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Then what books were written with specific instructions for the church? That'd be 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. What books were written, maybe not to a specific church, but the church at large? That'd be James, 1st Peter, 2nd Peter, 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John, and even Jude. All right? So how many books does that leave? You want to count? Well, he was three after the book of Acts, right? Philemon, who was written to, uh, to a specific person for a specific reason. Only one chapter, by the way. The uh, book of Hebrews, right? Written to uh, a bunch of Jewish believers who just call themselves Hebrews, yet still has some instructions for the church. And then finally, the book of Revelation, right? Things to come yet. And, uh, but it's, I think, okay to note that there is a couple chapters there written to the seven churches, Right? You see the great emphasis in the church in the New Testament? You know, really, if I could sum up, the church is the primary vehicle that God is using to make disciples for his glory and honor. And I think of it this way a little bit too, uh, an illustration for you. Um, what if it came up to here, Paul and Chris, you guys are sitting close enough, so <laughs> thanks for volunteering. Um, I came up to Paul, I'm like, Paul, you're awesome. I love you, man. You're so great. I just love what you know, who you are and what you stand for and what you believe, I love you. And then I'm like, you know, Chris, your life, yeah, she's all right, you know. <laughs> she has a few blemishes and stuff, but she's, she's pretty good, you know. You know, and let me step out of the illustration for a second. We know that Chris is, like, stellar and awesome and, like, you know, Paul, you're probably, like, me, like, married up, right? <laughs> so, but let me go back into the illustration now, right? If I said that to you, Paul, you'd be kind of like, well, how much do you really love me if you don't even love my wife, you know, that much, right? And uh, the scripture says that uh, Christ is the groom and who's the bride? The church is the bride. And yes, we understand that the church has blemishes, right? Because uh, we all have blemishes and we all make up the church, right? And, but Christ loves and adores the church and is coming back to the redeem the church as well, right? So there's a heavy emphasis, yes, do we need to love Christ? Yes, for sure. But we also need to love the bride of of the groom, right, which is the church. So trying to accelerate the mission of the church. If I asked you, what is the mission of the church? Our mission of the church is to glorify God, right, through the fulfillment of the Great Commission to make disciples. So I think it's a fair question to ask, what can I do to accelerate the mission of the church? What can I do to accelerate the mission of the church? And um, you know, we all want to hop on this vehicle, this vessel, which is the local church, because you know what? We're stronger together than apart. We even, each by the power of the Holy Spirit, being given spiritual gifts, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12. And when we come together and we can fit them together, Christ assembles together, and we can be stronger together and make a greater impact not only in your heart and life, but in the people's hearts and lives in this room and plus outside of this building. We have a greater impact all together. So what can I do personally to accelerate the mission of the church? Well, let's hop into the, back into the text, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Spirit to speak a word to Asia. And when they had come to Messiah, they attempted to go into Thynia, and the Spirit of the Lord did not allow them to do that. So passing uh, by Messiah, they went down to Troas. All right, so 
uh, I love these. There's three of them, right? Paul, Silas, and Timothy now. They're going out, and they're like really clear what God has called them to do. God has called them to do and go make disciples, right? And they're like, well, let's go over here and make disciples. I think that would be God's will to do that. So they go over there, and they're like, nope. The Holy Spirit says no. And then they go over here, and the Holy Spirit's like, no. Don't go in there. But I love their heart. What is their heart? Their heart is being proactive. We know what God has called us to do. We see open doors in front of us. Let's go. And then the Spirit, we'll let the Spirit close the doors as he sees fit. Let's keep on reading. Verse 9, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, he immediately, um, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, including, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Yeah, duh, right? He just gave you a vision, right? God made it clear then. So, yes, hey, we're going to go make disciples. Oh, should we go over here, Lord? Oh, no, closed door here. Should we go over here? Nope, oh, closed door. Here, this is where you should go. Okay, we'll keep that door open, right? And they pursued it. So, Thank you, Lord, for clarity. So what can I do to accelerate the mission of the church? I can proactive, be, be proactive in making disciples. I can be proactive in making disciples. How can I be proactive in making disciples? Well, uh, I think what we learn and see from uh, these trio of missionaries, we don't wait uh, for the church to do something. Like, yeah, we've done a missions trip here at Harvest Bible Chapel before, and we'll do one again sometime in the future, but I don't have to wait for a missions trip to make disciples, right? Hasn't God already presented some open doors in my life that I can go and pursue and make disciples? Um, we don't have to wait for the church to do outreach events, even though, yeah, we'll continue to do those and have opportunities for that. But there's going to be open doors already that God is giving me that I can pursue and say, Lord, if you don't want me to do that there, then close the door. I can be proactive in it. Many of you are in positions where you're in a 40-hour week job and, and you're around People, and there's open doors, tons of open doors in front of you. And Lord, I know what you called me to do. I know you called me to witness and share the gospel with them. Just close it if, if that's the case, but don't sit passively waiting. Be proactive. You got communities in which you live. You have friends and loved ones, family that maybe need to know Christ. Think about the community in which we live in, which has the Mayo Clinic. It's kind of unique. Like, how many people come to the Mayo Clinic each year? Does anyone know that number? A lot, yeah. <laughs> I don't know exactly. They're the only uh, statistic I could find online was from 2015, and this was for all the male campuses, like all over the nation, right? Um, was 1.3 million went to those facilities. So I'm guessing male Rochester, being the major hub, had a large part of that, right, coming in here. Isn't that like open doors? Went went Paul. Timothy and Silas, we'd be like, what? We don't have to travel all over the place? Like the world actually comes to us? <laughs> this is great. And we should have eyes for that, right? We should have eyes for those open doors and opportunities to share the gospel. I love Ed's heart. Um, one of our elders says, yeah, I just don't want Rochester to be a place known for physical healing, but I want, I want it a place to be known for spiritual healing as well. And how's that going to be done? I think that's going to be done through the impact of the local churches here. I think in this church, too, I think something that's really unique, we have a lot of younger people, right? So uh, to be an older person, I think you're like maybe 30 and up or 35 and up, which fits into me, right? And you look around, I'm like, man, there's so many open doors, opportunities for us older to come alongside the younger and disciple them, right? And I just need to pursue those opportunities and ask and inquire and pour in and invest, kind of like Paul's doing with the Timothy, 
Are there some Timothys here? Yes. Will you be a Paul? Will you invest? Will you pour into them? I also think, uh, I know it sounds almost bad, but I think it's almost like, or heretical, we need to pray less about open doors and just pursue the open doors that are in front of us already and ask God for clarity to open and shut those doors as we, he sees fit. Let's keep on reading about um, what I can do to accelerate the mission of the church. So jump back with me into the passage, verse 11. So he said, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Sam Mothraci, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony, and we remained in the city for some days. And then on the Sabbath day, which is what? The Sabbath day is their church day, all right? On their church day, uh, we went outside the gate to the riverside. And we were supposed to be, where there was supposed to be, there was a place of prayer. So, in Jewish culture, when you, it was church day, where did the Jews typically go? To the synagogue, right? So this is kind of unusual. They're going to the riverside, where there's supposed to be a place of prayer, right? Well, why is that? Um, well, the reason behind this, if we understand um, correctly, is that they wouldn't establish a synagogue in a community unless there was at least 10 male Jewish believers there, all right? Followers. So we know this was a smaller group of gathering of people, all right? So they didn't have their own synagogue yet, but they were still going to the church, then have their building. Makes me a little jealous, right? Because I'm like, oh, we got more than 10 years. Why don't we have our own building yet, right? Um, but it is implied to us, right? Uh, but this is a place of prayer. I would say that for sure as we gather. And what did they do? They sat down and they spoke to the women who had all come together. So uh, for some reason, the guys weren't showing up. Come on, guys, let's go, right? But thank you, ladies, for being faithful, pursuing deeper relationships with the Lord and leading us sometimes in that. And one of the ladies heard us was a, a woman named Lydia from the city of Tyrothyra a seller of purple goods. Now, this is interesting, a seller of purple goods. And, uh, you know, it's believed uh, that Lydia was maybe perhaps the first convert, like, um, that was in Europe, first person to get saved that was in Europe. Um, but I can't help but think, since she was a seller of purple goods, maybe she was like the first Vikings fan, possibly, <laughs> right? I don't know. Um, but even in her day, she never saw the Vikings win a Super Bowl. So <laughs> that's a discouraging thing there. Um, so she was a seller of purple, and, and what was so significant about being a seller of purple? Well, that was a really labor-intensive job, all right? Uh, to make purple, um, they would have, have to harvest snails, basically, right? And so they would take these snails, break them open, and there was this little tiny vein within the snail, had this purple, it wasn't blood, but some kind of ooze, right? And it was just like a little speck of it, all right? So she would have to collect those from snails uh, to make purple dye. To make one ounce of purple dye, guess how many snails they had to go through? A thousand? A little off, but good guess, right? Um, what I heard was 200,000 snails made one ounce of purple dye. And uh, I didn't, wasn't sure if I really believed that, so I looked on Wikipedia a little bit more, and uh, what <laughs> their numbers that they had, and I did some recalculations to equate it to ounce, uh, their numbers came out to more like 340,000 snails. So... A lot of snails, right? So if you think your job is like monotonous and repetitive, can you just picture her like next? <laughs> like well, just to get one ounce would take forever. So, um, and you think of purple. What was the color purple represent during this day? 
royalty, right? Because really, only the royalty could afford it, really is why. So, um, and then she was a worshiper of God, all right? Now, this is, means that she was a worshiper of the true and living God, um, but yet, this is the important part yet, she hadn't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ yet, okay? So, as Paul was t- talking and speaking, it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. And obviously, she recepted the gospel of Jesus Christ because it says after she was baptized and her whole household was well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And uh, she prevailed upon us. So, wow, isn't this cool? Like, they show up for church day, these out-of-town guests, they show up to go to church, right? Surely they showed up to be impacted, right, by the word of God and through the spirit of God. They went there to do that, but notice what Paul and Silas and Timothy did. They also looked to impact those around them in the church. And do you see, as verse 5 talked about, like, strengthening the, the church as part of their purpose? <laughs> Um, going deeper. Do you see that being fulfilled here on church day with their eyes to not only be impacted but also to impact those around them? I'll say this, they went to the place of prayer um, but they prayed with eyes wide open ready to be used by the Lord. So what can you do to accelerate the mission of the church? I can come prepared to make an impact. I can come here on Sundays prepared to make an impact, to go deeper. You know, uh, we spend a lot of time, um, what, we, what we'd call this at the 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. services um, on our staff, we call this a high-impact service. You notice the word impact is in there. Because we want to prepare in such a way that you guys feel through your worship of God that you feel the glory of the Lord coming down and you feel... Um, the intensity of the rawness and the realness of everything and who he is, and you just cry out in worship. It's powerful, right? And then through the preaching of the word, we want to be uh, not just information, but we want to be applicational focused so that the Holy Spirit can work in your life and show you the areas that you need to be convicted in or the areas that you need to be encouraged in on that day and be impacted. The staff tends uh, literally a lot of hours each week preparing for this high-impact service. So the question is, how are you prepared to receive it? You know, growing up, I kind of, my parents are here, I kind of despise going to church at times for sure, right? And uh, one of the ways that um, I thought it was more of a win to go to church was if I can convince them to go through the McDonald's drive-thru afterwards, right? That was a bonus then. Uh, but that was really a reflection of my own heart right? I wasn't ready. I wasn't prepared to be impacted by the word of God and through the worship. Are you prepared? Are you in the word before you come? Are you prayed up before you come? Lord, just prepare my heart to be impacted. What is your goal in being here today? Is it just uh, another thing to do? This is what Christians do, so I go, or maybe, hey, I made it here. That's accomplishment. I know it's hard as Mothers and fathers, right, to rally the kids. And, man, if we just make it there, that would be huge, right? But that's not the end goal either. Are you coming just to be a consumer of the church, just to get something out of it? Are you on time, right? If you're coming prepared, you're going to be on time, ready. It's going to be a greater impact if you're here for the whole service, right? Not just a piece of it. Are you prepared? 
Are you coming to be filled up, but equally then poured out? Do you have eyes? Like, that's what I want, like Paul and Silas and Timothy, like, of your brothers and sisters around you? Like, do you have eyes for meeting their needs? Like, sometimes you can see, like, after a service, like, somebody's really wrestling with something. Do you see that? And do you see that you can meet that need and impact their life by maybe just going up and praying with them? Or just going over to them and encouraging them through the word? Like, do you have eyes like that? Let's, let's do that. Could you see how, if we all have those kind of eyes, how it could accelerate the mission of the church if we're coming to be impacted, but also impact each other? Do you see how that could accelerate the mission of making disciples here at Harvest Bible Rochester? I see it because I see it in the text, for sure. Our church would definitely be strengthened to go deeper if we all have that same mindset. And sure enough, yes, it would accelerate the mission of the church. Let's keep on reading. Verse 16 now, it says, As they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, which means that she was demon-possessed, and brought and bought her owners much gain by her fortune teller. So her owners had her do fortune telling, and people would pay to have their fortunes told, and then they would profit from her, all right? Uh, she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. I think this is really interesting, right? Here's a slave girl who's demon-possessed, and what she's saying is actually true. Aren't these people, aren't these men really servants of the Most High God? who claim the way of salvation? Yeah, that is actually true. It's kind of weird, right? So what is she really doing? It says she kept on doing this for many days. She did it over and over again. I could see as they're walking along and as they're trying to interact with people, this demon-possessed slave girl is like, these are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of the salvation. These are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. These are the servants of the Most High God to proclaim the way of salvation. These are the servants of the Most High God to proclaim the way of salvation. Anyone want me to stop yet? I can keep on going here. Yeah, that's kind of annoying in a way, right? What was she trying to do? She was really trying to distract them in some ways, kind of sabotage their ministry in a lot of ways. I think the best way I can illustrate this is, um, you know, I have kids, and when I come home from a long day, and I'm sitting down and having a meal with my whole family, and there's like something I really want to talk to Crystal about, right? Hey, God showed up in this way, or this is something on my heart, or I just want to love you in this way, right? You want to have an intentional conversation, so I start that intentional conversation, and not more than probably 15, 20 seconds into it, what happens? One of my kids is like, Dad, Dad. I'm like, hey, just wait a second. I got, let me finish this conversation. And then they're like, Dad, Dad. Just keep, wait, I know it's important. Can you just wait? I'm just trying to, Dad, Dad, Dad. And then, like, can you just sit down and be quiet, right? <laughs> I'm just trying to talk to my wife here. All right? That's kind of what's going on here a little bit. All right? So it says, even Paul, it says, Having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you uh, in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Now, I haven't tried that with my kids. Maybe, I don't know. Um, Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain or profit was gone, they seize Paul and Silas. They're like, oh man, you just ruined how we make money. Now we're really, really upset. So they dragged um, them into the marketplace, like a public arena, really, before their rulers. And when they had bought, bought, they brought them to the magistrate who were the rulers, they said, 
these men are Jews and they are disturbing the way of our city, which wasn't true. Uh, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And what would these rulers do? You think they would call like to peace? You know, no, they didn't do that. It says the magistrates then tore off their garments on them in order to have them beat with rods. And they had inflicted many blows upon them. Isn't this crazy? It's like a mob-like scene, really. And the rulers who should have interjected and stopped the chaos added to it. And you must know, like Paul and Timothy and Silas, they were due a right to a trial. Like these accusations were coming about, and they didn't have a fair trial, right? They should have been. And the ruler said, no, we have to go through the process, right? There's a law in place to keep the order. But instead, they encouraged the mob-like mentality, and many blows of rods came upon them. Like, we can read all that quickly, but just, like, think about it. Like, their bare back, rods hitting them repeatedly, all right? That means bloody mess. Not a pretty sight at all. Like, they were whipped hard. After this, they were thrown in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner part of the prison, which is the safest part of the prison, right? As far as not being able to escape. And fastened their feet feet into stocks. Now, these stocks, when you think of stocks, usually I think of like the ones in like Britain more where you have those stocks and you put your hands to those wooden things and they come down. And sometimes they have a head hole too where you can stick it in there. And uh, in that society in Britain, it was more as a sign of humiliation because it would be in a public place and people would bring the rotten, you know, fruit and vegetables and throw them at you and make fun of you and that kind of stuff and you couldn't leave. That wasn't the case with these stocks as far as humiliation. Nor was it a stock to keep them extra secure because they're already in the most secure part of the prison. So what were these stocks for? Well, these stocks were for uh, torture, really. All right. So these stocks, they would put them in their feet and, and legs in such a position that would restrict the blood flow to your legs, which would cause continued cramping. Like a lot of you are athletes and crossfitters, right? If you ever had a, a cramped, like, isn't it nice that you can actually stretch it and get it out, right? Cramped hurts a lot. Can you imagine being in this position where you have continued cramping and you can't even move and you can't even stretch it? How painful that would be? How hard that would be? And then remember, these got whipped, right? They're already a mess. Going through a lot for sure. Put your finger in your Bible and just close it for a second. Don't lose your spot, though. What do you think happened next? What do you think, if you were in their spot, what would your response be after all this? I can think of at least my response, right? Just being real with you. I've been like, man, this stinks, right? God, why did you, like, we went to make disciples over here and you closed this door. We went to disciples over here and you closed this door. And this is the door you opened? Really? This doesn't seem like a really good idea. Like, this really stinks. This is hard. I just want to give up. I, I probably just want to die. I might even curse God in that moment, to be honest. Like, this isn't fair. I don't deserve this. The third way we can accelerate the mission of the church. I can have the right perspective. Even when it's hard. Even when I'm going through affliction and suffering, I can have the right perspective. 
You know, Satan loves to use our affliction, loves to use our suffering, loves to use persecution in our life to get us distracted off the mission of making disciples. He just does. He brings it to a halt, right? We're so focused. We're going straight ahead. We're going to do it. We're going to make disciples. Affliction, suffering, turn my head to the left, turn my head to the right, right? Anything he can do to get us off focused, to creep in doubt, right? To discourage us, to give up. Satan loves to do that, but how did they choose to respond? If you haven't opened your Bibles, again, go ahead and do that. Verse 25, it was about midnight, and Paul and Silas were praying and what? Singing hymns to God. As they're like continually in this cramping stage, like they're praying and singing, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> not, my, not my response, right? They have the right perspective. Under this right perspective, you have a, the first point, bullet point there. It says, I can choose to restore, rejoice instead of complain. I can choose to rejoice instead of murmur or complain about my situation. That's where their heart was. Do you think when we're out in the world, when we choose to, um, when suffering comes, affliction comes, when we've been wronged, do you think when we choose to rejoice instead of complain, do you think people might notice that? might notice a difference in us? I think so. Do you think that's going to help accelerate the mission of the church? Like to go wider and increase in numbers daily like verse 5 says? I think so. It's really hard to do, but I can I have a choice. I can choose to rejoice instead of complain. And I think we see uh, at the end of verse 25, we see the impact of that already because it says the prisoners, the other prisoners were, were listening into them. And then suddenly there was a great earthquake. This is a supernatural earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaking, and immediately all the doors were opened, not just their door to their cell, but all the doors in the prison were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So the earthquake was strong enough to open every door in the, the jail, but also uh, in a supernatural way, uh, God allowed every shackle to come off all the prisoners, basically. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped, right? That's a pretty safe assumption. Usually you think if like, all the jail or prisoners are like free, that their natural instinct is going to be to leave, right? Run, woohoo! <laughs> See you later. I'm going to escape, right? And why was this jailer about to kill himself, though? Well, in this uh, day and age, right, if a jailer didn't do his job and a prisoner would escape, he was held accountable to it, right? So what they would do if a jailer let a prisoner escape, they would bring him to the center of the uh, town and they would humiliate him publicly and torture him publicly and put him to death. So he's just like, I might as well skip all that and just follow my sword right now. Like, so you can imagine what's going through his heart and mind at this time. But what's Paul's reaction? It says, but Paul cried in a law of voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. That's incredible. Not only was Paul and Silas still there, but all the prisoners were still there. Like, why are these prisoners, like, just hanging around? They're free. Why aren't they running away? I th we don't know for sure, but I think it had to do something with that impact earlier of these wackos called Paul and Silas, like, singing to God after being tortured, right, and being falsely accused, and they're singing, like, they're Something a little different with these guys. I want to see what's happening. And then supernatural earthquake shackles being dropped. Like, 
they're still sh in shock of that. Like something's going on here that's bigger than us. I think they, and they're not going to like move at this time. So none of them move. Another way though too, or another thing to think about is like, why is Paul so concerned about the jailer? Right? Now the jailer would have been somebody who was ex-military. All right? And when you, when brought prisoners, all right, it wasn't like um, checking into the Hilton Hotel, all right? Like, the jailer wouldn't be like, hey, you know, we got a nice cozy room for you. You know, did you have enough towels? Do you need an extra pillow? Can I carry your bags for you? Uh, that's not how that worked in that day, all right? The jailer would deceive the prisoners and deal with them harshly all the way to their cell, probably dragging them, right? Probably mocking them, spitting on them, um, maybe slapping on the back on their sore wounds, like, oh, I hope you enjoy your stay here. Slap, slap, slap. They're the ones who locked them or locked them into their stocks and locked the door and didn't care if they were tortured all night. Why in the world would Paul even care about the jailer at this point, right? Why would he even care? That's the question I had going through my mind. And I think it's this. Him having the respect of the second point there, I choose to be more concerned about you than me. I choose to be more concerned about you than me. Paul's first thoughts were not about what he could gain by escaping and being free. His first thoughts were about the jailer. He had no more purpose for living and Paul saw the person who abused him. He saw him with a soul and saw that he needed Christ. He chose to have the right perspective in that moment. So verse 29 says, The jailer called for his lights because it was dark out, and he rushed in and trembling in fear. He fell face down. He lay prostrate before uh, Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Like, if you only have one question asked, that's the right question to ask in that moment, right? Obviously, the jailer was so moved that he knew that these guys knew the true and living God, partially because of them praying out loud and singing out loud and doing the supernatural work of the earthquake and the shackles being dropped. Great question to ask. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. And then they brought him up to the house and set food before him. And he rejoiced along with their entire household that he had believed in God. You see it? You see the increasing in number daily out in the world, growing wider because they chose to have the right perspective? I see it in there for sure. Accelerated the mission of the church. Story's not over though yet, so let's jump into verse 35. It says, but when it was day, the magistrates, those are the rulers, right, sent the police saying, let's just let these men go. Let's be done with it. Like, my, our jail is now ruined and all that kind of stuff. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrate has sent to let you go. They're like, hey, isn't this great news? Paul and Silas, you're free to go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Just leave. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and been thrown into prison, and they do now, and now do they throw us out secretly? 
what Paul is basically saying, hey, they never gave us the fair trial that we we're supposed to have, and they beat us and condemned us and did all these things to us. Like, if we're going to go, they need to be the ones to let us free. They need to come to us and tell us that. So he says, no, let them come to ourselves and, and take us out of here. And the re- police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were all afraid. Why were they afraid? Right? They were afraid because they didn't do what they're supposed to do as leaders. They didn't follow the due process of the law. So if Paul and Silas wanted to make a big stink over this, they could be fired from their positions, basically, because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. Isn't this typical politics, right? Like, if you do something wrong, you kind of, like, hide it under the comfort, like, just go away, kind of, right? Let's not talk about that. So Paul's like, no, they need to come speak to us. They need to be the ones who release us. So they came and apologized to them. And they took uh, them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out to the prison and visited Lydia. So they didn't leave right away. They were like, okay, we'll leave. We do forgive you. I think that's implied here. Uh, but we're going to leave on our own terms. We're going to go visit our friend Lydia, maybe pick up some last Vikings gear or whatever. And when they have seen their brothers, uh, they encouraged them and then departed. All right? So I think this is really important catch here as we're thinking. All right? So they forgave them, right? But even in their forgiveness, couldn't they still demanded that they be held accountable for what they did wrong? Couldn't they have made this big stink and be like, no, you hurt me so bad, so you're going to pay? Like, I'm going to let your bosses know, right, so that you have repercussions against you for what you did to us, so that you get kicked out of your position, right? They could have done that. Have you ever heard the saying, um, hurt people, hurt people? It's kind of like that eye for eye kind of mentality. Well, Paul, Silas, Timothy, right? They chose to uh, rise above that kind of mentality and uh, they chose to have the right perspective. And the last bullet point there is I choose to release others from how they hurt me. That's hard to do. I choose to release others from how they hurt me. But when you're in the world, when you're acting in the world and somebody hurts you and you choose to forgive them, don't you think that's going to accelerate the mission of the church? Don't you think they might be curious about what's going on in your heart and your life when you choose not to hold it over their head? If you're like me, I would have demanded that they face the repercussions that they deserved, but they chose to release them. And in doing so, I think they're accelerating the mission of the church and furthering the opportunity to make disciples. So how is your perspective, is the question. How is your perspective? Is it right? Is it godly? Is it focused on the mission of the church? Or do you get distracted when life is hard and afflictions come upon you? How's your tongue? Or even better, how's your inward spirit? Does it rejoice when there's nothing about your situations that's worthy to be praised other than Christ? Is, do you have a murmuring or complaining heart, which is really just sucking the fuel right out of the gas tank to make disciples in your life? Or do you have a rejoicing heart that will attract others to a Christ? How do you view others? Do you look at them with the eyes of compassion and need of the gospel, need to go deeper in Christ? What hurts by others have you been holding over somebody, over somebody's head 
that brings the mission of making disciples in your life to a screeching halt because that's what unforgiveness will do. And forgiveness will bring others towards Christ. Forgive others just as Christ has forgiven you. We're going to close with this song, 1,000 Tongues, because this is really of a, a church message, right? We're talking about an unstoppable power of making disciples, and this morning really over the church. And this song really encompasses it well. It talks about how we, not just one or two of you, but we are a sea of voices. We are an ocean of your praise. We are gathered, what? Under one name, Jesus Christ. That's why we rally together for the purpose and the mission of the local church. We cannot be contained. There's accelerate. There's momentum there, right? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're gathered under one name. We sing, oh, for a thousand tongues.